So there's a lot of talk, 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 but is anybody really saying anything? There are a couple of secrets to really great communication, and we're going to find out a few of them today on Embark. I'm Liz Solar, and my guest today is Tina Bakehouse. She is the chief communicator, a great TEDx speaker, and coach at Tina B. Every day she dons the invincibility bracelets and protects audiences from boring speeches. And since there's so much speechifying going on and we're on so many Zoom calls having to present something about our businesses or something personal, we're going to need all the help we can get. So I'm bringing in the heavyweights today and introducing you to Tina Bakehouse. How are you? I'm wonderful, Liz. It's great to be here today. Glad to have you. I have to ask you this question first because you have an unusual but cool last name Mm -hmm. and I have kind of a catchy last name as well. Solar is my legitimate surname. Do people often try to link in with you because they think that you're a baker or a bakery? <laughs> yes. Well, it's funny because I my maiden name was Knizel, which let me tell you, I was a teacher and I would always say, can I sell? Yes, I can. I'm very persuasive. And then when I got the opportunity to change to Bakehouse, I thought the hyphenation would be too much of a mouthful, Kanizel Bakehouse. So people have been surprised pleasantly when they say or ask to spell it, oh, just like it sounds, bake is in baking cookies, house is in casa. But there is a Bakehouse bakery in Germany that my in-laws, when they visited, took a picture of. And, and some people have mentioned, oh, you don't have a bakery, but I bake I, great ideas and I help uh, cook, you know, and initiate the speaker to cook up some good ideas, if you will. So I, I love the last name. It feels powerful and it's it's easy to spell and pronounce. So it's been fun. Absolutely. No, I, I'm always curious about that because there are the algorithms which get in the way of communicating sometimes or they become kind of bothersome. People will connect with me and say, since you're in the solar energy business, I'm like, <laughs> well, no, I'm not. And if you read my profile, you would know that. But often I think LinkedIn's algorithm just kicks in and they send out invitations on your behalf. Yeah. Fortunately, LinkedIn, I haven't had very many of the, the bakery types of inquiries. It's just in conversation when I'm networking and meeting people. But I, I love I love your last name, Liz, because it's it's like this bright light and you you have that spirit of bright light. So it seems quite appropriate. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Now now that we've done the Mutual Admiration Society of Surnames, we can get into <laughs> being a magnetic speaker and protecting people from boring speeches. Do you have a few principles that you use? And there used to be, I, I don't know, when I was a kid, there would be these like matchbook covers. And I'm definitely dating myself now. If you can draw fluffy, you can become an artist. <laughs> Is it that easy to become a compelling storyteller? Well, the first I'd like to talk about is that whole idea that I do have dimensions for mastering public speaking. And it just starts first with having a balanced heart and mind. In order to be a magnetic speaker, you need to channel into your soul and really align your heart, your message, and then concentrate on how to to have that appropriate mindset that you see yourself as the speaker that you are. That's the first dimension is to really tune in to having that balanced heart and mind. That's the first dimension. The second 
dimension that I always like to, to really push towards and teach with my clients is embodying self-love. And when you love yourself and you monitor the who that you are and lean into the authentic self, not the conditioned self and, and tune into that energy, then that's what people feel. So when you show up with feeling fear or negativity or judgment from others and worried about being enough or not valued, then that's what's going to come through with what you say and how you present yourself. The third dimension of public speaking is really mastering, incorporating audience centeredness. And once you do the stuff of understanding the self that you are, it's really all about the audience, tuning into those different learning styles engaging them with a variety of strategies and just tapping into sculpting your words to have powerful meaning because public speaking is an art form. And the fourth dimension is then to have engaging organized content. That is where you get to really color your presentations with stories, painting them with visual imagery, organizing them in a way that your audience knows where you're starting, where you're ending, and and to have that stay power based on a good solid structure. And then finally, the fifth dimension I like to talk about is being anchored in confidence, your being, your overall essence. And that's where you lean into committing to your vision and sharing that message for the greater good. Just asking yourself, who am I being and what do I want to be known for? And the audience doesn't want anyone but you. Your latter question that you asked was, well, is this easy? Can, can you just be a storyteller? Well, John Capecci said that we're all natural born orators of our own lives. So we were born to tell stories. Think of how we grew up just creating little stories. We weren't trained as children to play with our dolls and Barbies or, or go outside on our bikes and imagine that they were something else or with our brothers and sisters and friends. We just did it. And it was part of who we were as we played. And then as we get older as adults, we sneak in that judgment, that conditioned self, and we start to worry that, well, do, is what I say mattered? I want to do it right? All those different things. There definitely are ways in which to structure a strong story, but really what people want is authenticity, the realness, the vulnerability, the visibility of what you went through, how you struggled, got through it to the other side and were transformed. How much do you need your talk, even if it's a pitch, even if it's a 30-second pitch, how much of that has to be predetermined, practiced, and ready to roll as opposed to improving it? That's, uh, I would say it really all depends. That's our favorite answer when it comes to communication. It depends. How formal is the speaking engagement? If it's a networking event, obviously you show up. You do some listening, asking questions, being curious, make connections. So you, you really don't plan a talk. That to me is the, a lesser, a less formal experience where you're talking one-on-one -on -one or in small groups. If you're facilitating a workshop, you obviously need to have planned your visual aids if appropriate. And you, you want to know your basic beginning, middle, and end, and you have the structure laid out. And then you have the keynote and the TED Talks, and those are the highest level of formality where, especially with TED, they do expect it to be memorized and that it's under 12 minutes. It used to be under 18, and they're really getting into under 12 minutes. And that just takes a lot of preparation, a lot of practice, and a lot of time. So asking yourself these three core questions is first, what does the occasion require? 
Second, what's appropriate for the given context? And finally, what does my audience need for me? And when you answer those three questions about what does the speaking occasion require, what's appropriate, and what does the audience need, and you make that audience centeredness, you then will know how much time, effort, and energy to put into a presentation. I always say the it's about an hour of preparation for every minute of presenting time. And that's with research, crafting, practice. Exactly. And do you find that people, um, audiences prefer data, some hard data, even though we're not responding to the hard data, but how essential is it to have a number of facts spread throughout your talk? I mean, you're coming in as an authentic person with your own point of view, and at the same time, how much content needs to support that with actual fact? Actual facts are important to establish credibility. You want to hook your audience, you want to engage them, but you also need to establish that you're an authority on this actual topic. So peppering in some data, you don't want to overwhelm and overload, but you want to show that you have what's relevant and true to the given topic. TED Talks, for example, are 65% story. You know, we know that data is very important. However, you don't want to overwhelm date with the listeners with data because stories are 22 times more memorable than facts. And that's from the Harvard Business Review. And when you find you're speaking, you want to have a healthy, happy balance. It's sort of like the three little bears. You could have too much data and overwhelm your audience, or you could have too little and make them think you don't know what you're talking about. Or you could be like baby bear and have it just right, where I always like to say within the introduction, have at least one piece, one nugget of data that supports after you've hooked your audience, or maybe a startling fact to start your talk. And then if you have three main points, at least one to two pieces of data that are embedded that you explain through analogy and story. And then in the closure, data may not be necessary. But again, it's looking at what is the formality of the speaking experience, but still encompassing data that's easy to understand and remember, easy for you to say, and easy for your audience to take with them. Because at the end of the day, you want your audience to remember your message. What is the most compelling thing that you've heard from either one of your students or talk that someone gave to a large audience? Anything stand out? My, I've heard so many talks ranging from Brene Brown's vulnerability talk where she does this beautiful hook and starts it by really revealing vulnerability through the story, showing versus telling and she says it's it's in promoting this upcoming speech and and they're wondering what to call her and storyteller feels too fairy dust and and researcher feels too stoic and so she decided to call herself researcher storyteller so what she did in that short 2 minute hook was really reveal vulnerability mm-hmm. and i thought that was powerful i've also appreciated when people, you know, have, when they look at themselves and they have struggled with something and they, they have shared their going from one end to the other on a path. And I love Elizabeth Gilbert's Ted talk on creativity and being the genius that she is really reveals in her closure that she doesn't know how well received her next book is going to be. It's terrifying. It's, and, and revealing that fear because her first Eat, Pray, Love was just this 
knock out of the park, couldn't believe she got so much recognition, became a movie. And now she's feeling this pressure to be creative. We've all been there in some way, shape or form. And I think what rings true is when speakers share the realness, share example and share it through story. I absolutely believe that's true. I'm a writer as well. And we just want to connect. And if we're not making that connection from the very beginning, whether it's one person or an auditorium filled with them or a Zoom room filled with hundreds or thousands of people, we've lost them. Absolutely. And it is very different. We have to understand presenting in person is very different than presenting virtually. And I've learned that. it's It was surprising to me when the pandemic really started and I decided, why not do what I've done on the side as a passion side gig for more than a decade? Do it on its own as its own business. I, I realized very quickly in order to leverage my, my business and grow not just regionally, nationally, and internationally, I had to get online. And it was terrifying to me. I could finally, for the first time, empathize with my clients. So that first keynote I did where you have little boxes and some of the boxes you see faces, some have a blank space because they've decided to not show their their video, their face. It was weird. And I live on a farm here in Southwest Iowa. So my bay window, I see beautiful pasture, my herd of goats out in the field. And I realized very quickly, I had to be intrinsically motivated instead of extrinsically motivated. I know when I walk into a space, whether for a keynote or a workshop, I feel the energy and I intuitively can grasp and connect with my audience and when I show up for a workshop, it's going to be different with one group than the other because I tune into their needs. I sort of become that thermostat in the room that can feel where are we at, where do we need to go for this given audience because it is about them. And when we recognize, even doing Facebook Lives, I've done five-day workshops or Facebook Lives. And the I did a 30-day challenge where I was really crippled with judgment, inner judgment and harshness to myself. And I went through a metamorphosis with a 30 day challenge that my business coach had encouraged me to do. And I realized, okay, here's what's ironic. I am a public speaking and storytelling coach and I hate doing Facebook lives. It makes me feel weird. And I realized I needed to work with just loving the camera, pretending people are there and just noting that the right people are going to watch this. So just like a a caterpillar changes into a butterfly, I had that same experience. So it's noting there are different speaking experiences, getting more practice will actually help you know better, do better, like Maya Angelou says. I absolutely believe that. And I think some really great talks go downhill because someone wasn't really prepared. They didn't really know what they wanted to say or how they were going to say it. And they might have a great energy, but can that can only take you so far if you don't have the content. Right. And and having the, the the kind of appropriate energy is so important. You want to ask yourself, you know, what kind of energy are you feeling? Is it more feminine or masculine? You know, feminine energy is more receptive, calm and open, whereas masculine energy is more active, full of enthusiasm and excitement. And both are important for various reasons, various ways. You might use the feminine energy for more of a heartfelt story or when you're wanting to add contrast to texture your presentation, or when you're facilitating Q&A with your audience. Whereas when it's masculine energy, it's really great to kick off your presentation to hook them with that enthusiasm to engage them because you're excited about your topic and you want to show that right out of the gate. 
or maybe in, engaging them within the body of your speech with an exciting rhetorical question to get them to raise their hands or stand up or engage or ending with a pal in the conclusion. That's another great way. But again, it's determining what is it you own your own energy and what is it you want the audience to feel. Tina, to your point about putting the audience first and what do they want and in giving to them, being generous, I think this is one of your your most important tenets is active listening. Right. Absolutely. Listening to self and to the other. And to me, when you are, and I saw a post today on LinkedIn about hearing versus listening, and people confuse them quite often and they are different. To me, hearing is the sound, the audible sound. It's it's like a Charlie Brown's teacher, wah, 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 wah. You know there's stuff coming out of a person's mouth and you're just hearing the pitch, the tone coming out. Whereas when it comes to listening, it's actually tuning into the content of the message and what are the words that are being said, how the pair language, how they're being said, the subtext, what's not being said. And that is very hard and heavy to do. And you have to be intentional. And even just working with a client this morning, I could feel her being so seen, heard and understood. And that's what people want more than anything is to be seen, heard and understood. And She left. She says, I'm so excited. And I said, really? I said, why? She goes, because you listened. And that's what it's all about, right? It just gives me chills thinking about how years ago I was given the best insight from an ex-boyfriend when he said, you know, you're the most enthusiastic communicator. I love your enthusiasm. You really could listen better. And that was really great feedback in my late teens and early 20s where I was doing a lot of talking at people and not really realizing that it is a co-creation. We want to get in a dance of conversation. And in order to do so, there's constant sending and receiving of messages. And if I'm doing all the talking, the at or the to, which there is power in that preposition, that preposition that you choose and how you show up to a conversation, show up to a presentation, it really should be with. That's the more powerful preposition is it's a with. And that's when you see the real power happen. So when you're speaking in front of a group of people, and perhaps you are the only one physically speaking, there's still a dialogue, there's still a conversation going on that is implicit in what you're saying, what what you're communicating. How best to do that so that people do feel you're with them? Or is it more a matter of, I guess, analogous to active listening is reading the room. Mm. Are, are you adjusting your talk as you're reading the room? Are you coming in with something knowing that, well, these are your people. This is what they're here to, to listen to today. This is this is why they're present. And you're actually giving them what you feel is necessary. I'm not sure that I'm being very graceful about that question, but how do you actively listen to an audience that is sitting back and listening to you? I think there's real power in tuning into the space, the context, and tuning into yourself, all of that, because the audience does mirror you and the energy that you portray, as I mentioned earlier, that to be an effective communicator, you really have to be aware of the different contexts, the different audiences, because public speaking is an art. It's, it's like visual artists where they don't just wake up in the morning and, and make a beautiful painting just oof, quickly. They've taken time. They've learned their craft. They've studied it. 
and they've gotten better at it. They've taught themselves, had others mentor them, read things, study, research. Same with speakers. I find with the more formal presentations, which it sounds like you're alluding to is those more, those keynotes, those TED talks, where there's going to be more than 50 people a lot of times in the audience. It's easy for an audience member to just feel like, well, I'm just part of this big group. I'm not part of the thing. Does she even see or feel me? And so the first thing is tuning into the space. I always go ahead of time, at least an hour to really feel the space. And by that, I mean, walking out on stage, touching base with the tech, all of that, feeling the microphone. It's just like a famous pianist I got to meet a few years back where she touches the piano practices multiple hours before her performance because every piano is different. Every sound system and every microphone is different, how sensitive or not it is. And then I look out into the audience and really envision the audience to get my mindset ready and to get my body ready. But I also divide as I've, as I've done that and I'm in the, the process of, I really do the target analysis ahead of time of who's showing up to this. Or is this a group of women leaders that are entrepreneurs you know, look at those demographics and ask as I'm crafting the message, especially if it's a keynote, what is it that, why should they care? What is it about them? So that the message is for them. And when I go out, I divide that audience into thirds. And I really spend time because I tend to favor my left-hand side for some odd reason. I'm a right-handed. It seems kind of bizarre. So maybe I taught myself to overcompensate or something. Mm -hmm. But I really try to, when I'm sharing a message, particularly in those bigger audiences where it is easy to get lost in the crowd, to engage in a, a length of lengthy eye contact with individuals within those sections. I can't do that with all 500 people or more. That's just impossible in a given 30-minute or hour-long speech. But what I can do is feel like that they're part of something that they, that I'm, I'm looking in their way. And when I do at least a sentence where I, a beat of a speech and I'm looking at someone and I hold that space with that person, I know it's like that uh, story where a little boy is throwing back all the, all these, uh, you know, clams into the water. And this older gentleman's like, why are you doing that? There's so many, you're never going to save them all. I save this one as he throws one in. Well, I'm connecting with at least this one. And so you do the best you can, but I think dividing it, the big audience into thirds and try to have that lengthy eye contact with a variety of people in each of those sections can do that. And I, I do feel energy in the room. And sometimes the spirit moves me. Now with TED Talks, it's really regulated and it's very much an expectation that what you've practiced, what they saw in dress rehearsals, what they're going to hear that day. So it's Uber, uh, th though they want it to be conversational, they really, time is of the essence. You cannot be longer than the given time, a lot, you know, time frame. But I still feel like sometimes I can be moved by the spirit of what I see, what I feel intuitively. And I think that that's where the trust of self comes into play, where instead of fear, you lean into faith. Mm. Since most of us, Tina, are not going to get up on a stage, give a TED Talk, although what is it? Everybody's going to have their 15 minutes of fame, so perhaps we all will, mm -hmm. um, or get into those big conference centers and speechify. We might be talking to a group of our peers or making a presentation for the management team, mm -hmm. uh, You know, trying to persuade people who are in smaller groups. H how do we do that? How do we 
scale it down because we're talking more directly. It's not kind of fill the space that you have. Mm-hmm. How, how do you bring it down? How do you tell people to, you know, and there's a little bit more looseness about it as well. Even if it is a formal presentation, it's it's not as big. But it's still just, it still is important. And I, it's really asking yourself, who am I being and what, how do I want to connect with this audience? And the audience just wants you to be you, the real you. So it's, it's noting, it's asking yourself, you know, what will I wear? What will I say? How will I behave? How will I show up? Those core questions of putting on your power, wearing something that makes and helps you feel the confident magnetic speaker that you are, crafting a message that feels right and true for you for the given speaking circumstance and the given audience and that you've practiced it. Showing up in that personality, that temperament that that you are is so crucial. I remember when I was a facilitator trainer for an organization for more than four years when I was teaching at a university as a consultant on the side, part of my work was training operations managers to be more persuasive, to communicate. And something that I think is an important skill is really to show up into that space, have conversations, especially in a workshop setting, if it's external and you don't know the people, get to know them. And I would always have conversations casually before I would present this intense eight-hour training. And it was super helpful to know that they were required, first of all, to attend this training, which that sets the stage. They are they are captive, not voluntary audience. So that challenge that's a challenge. Many of them wanted to be elsewhere, had other things to do. This is just a full day. They just wanted to get it over with. But I, I could feel that. So I would always say, this is your day. This is about what I want it to be, what you need it to be. I want to be the facilitator you need me to be. And how can we together make this a meaningful experience? And it would always take, so I had the structure in front of me with the given handouts and the workbook and the slides, but I always spent more time with maybe one group on one thing and another group, another thing, because that's what they needed. Always as presenters, if you are flexible, adaptable and open, done your research, you make it really about the audience. They will feel that they will trust you. That build of trust, that build of rapport will create such a safe space that you will have a powerful experience. So the more you do the preparations ahead of time, trust yourself and go into that space, allow yourself the pause. Too many times we fill the air with noise. And so it's really important to not only prepare, practice, but pause. And you ask questions. Instead of saying, do you have any questions? That's a closed-ended statement. They can say, nope. Say, what Mm -hmm. questions do you have for me? Because I always think that's an important, crucial piece as a facilitator is you want them to be engaged at the end. You want the conversation with the audience to be the way that you close out the, the speaking event, the engagement, because then truly you have had a dance with them. It's been about them. It's been for them. Instead of you just talk, talk, talking, it's them revealing what they needed to know more of or what were the murky points and you could clarify. And so that's where I always, I never leave without at least one question from somebody other than myself so that we have that conversation. Really beyond preparing, beyond practicing, beyond having that pause, it's also incorporate story and tap into 
in the middle of your presentation, kind of like the middle child syndrome, it gets forgotten, it gets boring. Try to put something engaging, whether it's a rhetorical question, whether it's you know getting the audience to engage in an activity with you or a really fun story. Think how you can jazz up that middle portion so that they choose to listen. Because remember, all communication really is persuasive. The audience has two choices. They can choose to listen or they can choose to tune you out and you really want them to listen. So it's on you, just like if a tree falls in a forest and no one's there to hear it, did it really ever happen? Speech falls on dead ears and they're not listening, did it ever really happen? I want to get back to the act of listening because you have been a communicator all your life. As a kid, it sounds like you were always performing, always on with your siblings. And then later in high school, you did a lot of speeches. And so it must have been both surprising and um, profoundly upsetting when you lost your voice. I mean, it, you just lost it. Yes. Yes. It was 2006, September. I could tell the stress of, of the school year was get, it was getting to me and I'm teaching of all things. I'm a, a public speaking teacher and I teach senior English as well as writing and composition. And I open my mouth to speak and nothing, not even a squeak comes out. And I panic. I thought, what is happening here? This is weird. This is a fluke. And I immediately have a student go to the principal's office and have her come down. I, I, and I have to write notes and say, I nothing is coming out. So I immediately had to take a medical leave for multiple weeks and seek speech pathology help it was a good year process to regain voice. And, and if you remember, Julie Andrews had vocal cord nodules. Yes. And very much she went through the surgery, changed her voice. She cannot sing to the level she used to, but she's embraced poetry and things of other, you know, oratory in other ways. But I went and saw a specialist who wanted to do that same surgery and had an option. And he said, I can either do the surgery and your voice will most likely, it'll either change or it may not go well. So those are my two options. The other option was just to be completely silent for six weeks. The latter of the two, though the hardest, I chose to be silent. And it was in that time I realized how much of a communicative individual I was. I was six. It was in the summer, which made it very difficult. I love the, the energy of summer. And I was young, early on and in, in, in married and, and sociable but I had to take a notebook with me. I didn't socialize as much, but I did get a lot of calls of, I just want you to listen. <laughs> so I became this listening ear, but I realized just the energy and how taxing it is to really be that good of a listener. And it also helped me see value in how much people love talking about themselves, how much it is so important to ask them questions. Instead of being interesting, be interested and I remember when I was in the Serengeti years ago and I met Dr. John, who's this, he was at the time 80 years old and still practicing. He's a South African doctor. And I asked him lots of philosophies throughout the time we knew each other. And as we said our goodbyes, I said, what's one piece of advice that you'd like to share? And he said, always be curious and always ask good questions. It's never failed me in all my years of practicing medicine. So if we're curious, we ask questions and then we listen to those responses. Not only will we learn more, connect more, but grow more. To leave the listeners with ways to put together a story, because I think you had talked about Dave 
Dave's killer bread. Wow. You know, this guy who came up with this great bread, but he had in fact been in prison. And that's that's a compelling story. Like if someone starts a story like that, I am definitely listening. Most of us don't have those types of life adventures, or we think of our lives as pretty mundane. How do you stoke a really good story from the average person who feels like, well, I'm just average. How do I come up with a story that's going to sell my business or have people want to connect to me? Well, first of all, I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves that we think we have to have climbed Mount Kilimanjaro or done something completely out of the realm, remarkable, made it to the Olympics, all of that to be seen as a compelling story, but really getting lost in a parking lot and learning something can be transformative. We all have had that first new job. How did it feel in that interview? Did you, what was it like for the interviewing experience or getting and landing that first new job in that first day? Firsts are really fascinating to people. So asking yourself, what's a first I can share that has a life lesson? Or what's a best moment in sports or best moment you had as a leader where you work through it? the hardest experience you overcame. Stories do resonate and have stay power, but it's acknowledging that, again, we we all have stories to share from childhood, from adulthood and beyond, whether in our professional lives, personal lives, it's really tuning into what's the life lesson? How did I start out as one person and then transform into someone else because of this experience? When we know the story of, of Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, and she realizes after going to Oz, the great and powerful Oz, who was a fake and a phony, that she had it with inside of her all along. She didn't need to go to the powerful Oz. And that was the life lesson. Like she went back to Kansas, staying with her aunt and uncle and thought, there's no place like home. It's really having a story journal and jotting down different themes in your life, putting you know different emotions maybe that you want to link to a story. Because if you can embed story in your workshops, your presentations, even in conversations at networking, people will find you they will be interested, but you have to be interested back. Share a piece of that vulnerability. I always love having conversations with you, Tina, and assuring people that everybody does have a story and everybody has something to say. They absolutely do. And I challenge all of you to really practice it. The more you get comfortable just with a significant other, a friend, a family member, just sharing a story, the more apt you're going to do it for your business to help others because we learn from each other. And that's what story does. It's a beautiful learning tool. Many thanks to the fabulous Tina Bakehouse. If you want to know more about Tina, you can check out the liner notes of today's episode. Like what you hear on Embark? Share this episode and please subscribe. Next week, we're back with Jack Monson talking about the effect of reality TV. Mm, Buckle in. In the meantime, we know you have many choices as to how to spend 30 minutes of your day. So we appreciate you spending them here. For Embark, I'm Liz Solar. Have a great week, and thanks for listening.